The title of today's message is The Facts of Life Concerning Sin Denial, Part 8. It was given during the morning service on November 27, 2022 at the Eastside Bible Church in Chicago, Illinois by Pastor John Stevens. As I mentioned in my prayer, the last sermon from this last Sunday of the month series was on October 30th. And I completely went away from this text that we're in. We're currently in the middle of verse 12 of Titus 2, the marks of godliness, the marks of love for Christ, same thing. And on October 30th, I took us on a one-sermon side road to remind us of the grand theme of the New Testament, that all true believers, all true converts in Christ are truly transformed spiritually, all of them. We may struggle for times, we may backslide or rebel, but we return to the Lord it is inevitable that a true believer will persevere and grow. Two passages that I highlighted last year, last month, excuse me, are Second uh, Corinthians thirteen. So let's go over there just to get a highlight quickly. This is lost on the church today. I have talked to so many professed believers, even pastors outside of our church, and they have no clue what I'm talking about. So look at 2 Corinthians 13. We can't possibly transform ourselves as believers. We can't even obey as believers without outside help. The outside help is the Holy Spirit who lives within us. 2 Corinthians 13 verse 4, For indeed he was crucified because of impotence, powerlessness. It's not a word weak, I've told you that before. It's a terrible translation. Weakness speaks to little power. The Greek word refers to zero power. We are powerless in and of ourselves to live for the Lord. So it says, indeed he was crucified because of weakness. Not his weakness, our weakness. He was crucified because we were helpless. He wasn't weak, he wasn't powerless. Yet he lives because of the power of God. So he died for weak humans powerless humans who could not save themselves. That's the point of the beginning of verse 4. And then he talks about us as believers next in verse 4. For we also, as believers, are powerless in him. He includes himself. Yet we will live with him because of the power of God directed toward you. We only live for Christ because of the power of God, which is the Holy Spirit. Time and time again, I've run into professed believers. How do you know you're saved? Well, I've received Christ. That is not a test of true salvation. That is how you get saved. Reaffirming your profession of faith in Jesus Christ is not an evidence that you're saved. It's, and as I taught you last October 30th, a month ago, there's a reason why so much of the New Testament is confrontation of true believers, or at least professed believers, to make sure you're really saved. For the Spirit of God to write so many passages, as we reviewed last month, it shows the Spirit of God is very concerned as he looks down at the church and looks down at professed believers. And what he's seeing is there's a lot more individuals who are making profession than are actually saved. And so in verse 5, the Spirit of God through Paul to a very carnal church, the Corinthian church, tells them to test, peirazzo. It's an imperative command. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Dokimazo, examine, to prove, test, test, judge. Two imperative commands right off the bat. What are you testing? To see if you are in the faith. 
You test by deeds. You're saved by faith. Saved by faith alone. Sanctified by faith alone. Tested by works. Philippians chapter 1. Another passage we looked at to remind ourselves that all who are truly saved are transformed. God has empowered us to live for him when we are saved. And in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul has perfect assurance. I am confident of this very thing. He's confident. He has assurance in God that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Notice, this is the endurance or perseverance of the saints. There's no such thing as a professed believer who's truly saved, who's never transformed. We know from Ephesians 2 that for by grace are you saved by faith, grace through faith. And then it says, for works, in chapter 2 of Ephesians, verses 9 and 10, you are saved for good works. This is the reality of true conversion. This is what the church today has completely missed. I know a lot of unbelievers who say, well, I made the prayer to receive Jesus as my Savior and Lord, so I know I'm saved. That is not how you test yourself. Professions can very easily be false. And we know from Revelation, turn to Revelation 20. Revelation 20. That God, when he opens the books and makes everyone stand before him one day at the great white throne judgment, he is not going to ask, tell me if you're saved by profession. That is not how it works. In verse 12 of Revelation 20, the book of life and the dead were judged at the end of verse 12, and the things that were written in the books according to their deeds, judged according to their deeds. Do you see that? So if God judges us according to our works, you've got to judge yourself that way. That's the, that's the demand. End of verse 13. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. This is such a blind spot. I can name an unbeliever right now outside this church, and this person tells me continuously, I'm saved, I, I'm born again. I said, you don't have any transformation. You don't even go to church. Oh, so I've got to go to church to be saved. No. But you can't be disconnected from the body of Christ, according to 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. And consider yourself a true believer. This person's blind. They don't get it. This person just gives me the mantra over and over again. I know I'm saved. I know I'm saved. I receive Jesus. I'm born again. I'm born again. Why do you keep judging me, John? Someone who's never attended here. Well, that's how God judges us in verse 13. Every one of them according to their deeds. Saved by faith. Sanctified by faith alone. Judged by works. Back to Titus 2. So why did I go away from Titus 2 for an entire sermon last Sunday? Again, because this series in Titus chapter 2 is focusing so much on the ev major evidences of true salvation in Titus chapter 2. And I just desired last October 30th, the last time I was in this sermon series, just to sweep through the New Testament, showing the dramatic effect of the Holy Spirit on all who are truly saved. So many passages that show that. And we learned last month that in the New Testament, transformation always occurs in at least these four areas that I mentioned last Sunday. You don't really have any much room to write them down. You may be able to 
um, under the introduction. These are four major tests that we learn from the Bible, not my test, the Bible, to judge whether we're truly saved. And none of them are profession of faith. That's irrelevant as far as testing. Irrelevant. Okay? So if you're sitting here right now or listening by way of a tech device, and you think, well, I know I'm saved because I received Jesus. That is irrelevant as far as testing. Are we clear on that? Everybody say the word irrelevant. There you go. All right. Number one, we saw last month a miraculous hunger to repent. A miraculous hunger to repent. Showed you that from the Bible. Major evidence of salvation. Paul said in Colossians 2, as you receive Christ, so walk. So if I'm to repent as a believer and walk by repenting as a believer, and I'm to receive Christ and then walk the way I received, and if I'm repenting by my, in my walk, then what does that mean is necessary to be saved? Repentance. And so what does the satanic, apostate, false evangelical church do today? It drops repentance out of the gospel. As you received Christ at conversion, that's how you walk. And yet you have theologians, professors, missions, organizations, which teach that, uh, no, you're not saved by repenting, but after you re get saved, then you repent. As you received, you walk. If you're to repent after salvation, you're to repent to be saved. Number two, we saw a miraculous hunger to renounce self. That's a major evidence, dying to self. Major test and evidence of conversion. That brings up the issue of lordship. If I'm to renounce self as a believer, walking with Christ, if I'm to submit under his lordship, dedicate to his lordship, again, Colossians 2, as you received Christ, you walk. If I'm to dedicate and have him as lord as a believer, I had to receive him by faith as lord to begin with to be converted. Number three, we saw last month, a true believer is transformed, having a hunger, a miraculous hunger to do the will of God. We saw that, of course, in many passages, Matthew 7 included. The will of God includes serving with one's gifts. Hunger to repent, number one. Hunger to renounce self, number two. A hunger to do the will of God, number three. Especially, primarily, foundationally, using one's spiritual gifts. And number four, hunger for holiness, which requires a hunger for the Bible. A hunger for holiness and a hunger for the Bible. We look for fruit. We look for a hunger to study, read the Bible. Hunger to repent, hunger to renounce self, hunger for God's will, hunger for holiness through the word. We saw those last time. That is not the definitive or the exhaustive list, but those are Mount Everest peaks. And intertwining with those is Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. Look at this marvelous section where we're seeing the marks and evidences of true salvation, the marks of godliness. The grace of God has appeared, verse 11, bringing salvation to all men. It's offered to all men, but to us who are believers, in verse 12, instructing us to deny godliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Notice, speak and exhort and reprove. What is he saying? Be sure you teach believers, Titus, and exhort them to examine themselves as per verses 12 to 14. 
I've asked myself a fundamental question. When I talk to a professed believer and ask them, how do they know that they're saved? And we're going to talk about this tonight, by the way, in the introduction. And I get all these false answers. I ask myself, why is it that believers are so resistant to examine themselves to see if there's evidence of true conversion? That I will answer tonight in the introduction. It is a blind strongholded issue. There are believers that no matter how many times you confront them, they will come back to the same mantra, because I received Christ, because I received Christ. That's how I know I'm saved. I received Christ. That is how you get saved. That's not how you test yourself. This is a list of evidences. So when Christ says that we're to love him, when Christ says that we're to love him, he gives evidences. And the Spirit says we're to love him. Through Paul, he gives evidences here. Look at chapter 3. It's not just evidences of conversion. Not just evidences of transformation. In chapter 3, and this is so endemic to throughout the whole New Testament as well. Paul and all the apostles come to us with a list of what you were like when you were unsaved. It is a manifestation of non-transformation. It is, there are passages that tell us, this showed you weren't saved. And look at Titus chapter 3, verse 3. Another one of those repetitive hit lists. This is the way you were before you were saved. For you also once were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to lust and pleasures, spending our lives in malice, envy, hateful, hating one another. That were the evidences of conversion. That's the exact opposite of chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. Isn't this easy? This is really easy. You look for the evidences of transformation in chapter 2, 12 to 14. Not there, not saved. And if you're not saved, you're still buried in chapter 3, verse 3. The evidences of false conversion. And nothing is mentioned here about re-examining your profession. That's not on the table anywhere in the New Testament. At all. God is very concerned that we compare past life and is it still present in the current life. In chapter 3, verse 3, these are I am statements. You were, I am, you were. State of being. Fools, disobedient, deceived. There's no transformation here. Enslaved to various lusts, pleasures. Spending our life given over to malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. So when you start to see these same things in professed believers as they come walking into our churches, Bible-believing churches, and you hear them get up and give a testimony, I received Jesus as my Lord and Savior and repented, and yet you see chapter 3, verse 3, the same plague of depravity that is never transformed. Why would we not make a conclusion that the church is front-loaded with false believers? God has done us a great service. Spirit of God, throughout the New Testament says, yes, you're saved by faith alone, but let's please, you can make an insincere prayer to God and not truly submit in faith to his lordship or receive him in faith as savior. You can just say a magic prayer for whatever your 
your agenda is to want Jesus falsely in your life. And then what will happen is, the Bible is telling us, that the Spirit's not there, so you have no transformation in verses 12 to 14. And all the garbage of chapter 3, verse 3, is still there. You would think there'd be tons of carnal, permanently carnal believers across the land who would say, oh my goodness, I haven't been changed at all. My profession must be... My behavior before and after, my life before and after is exactly the same. The only difference is I said this prayer. You would think there'd be some type of awakening that would go on, but there isn't because there's no spirit of God to help the depraved fake believer to analyze themselves. And without the spirit, they're not going to analyze themselves. Self-examination is a mark of a believer. As it said back in 2 Corinthians 13, verses 4 and 5. Test yourselves. Examine yourselves. You can't do that if you're an unbeliever. The blindness, the blindness and the lack of desire to test oneself is so part and parcel with the quality of a false believer going to hell still. All right, so in your note sheet, you can see the long outline. We've seen verse 11, Roman numeral 1. We finished that. The love of Christ shows forth toward all humans and a grace invitation to salvation. And now we're in verses 12 to 14, as I've said. Grace command to be sanctified. These are the evidences of sanctification. So let me remind you, loving Christ, transformed, grace living, sanctified, all synonymous terms. If I love Christ, I have these evidences. If I'm transformed, I have these evidences. If I'm grace living, I have these evidences. If I love Christ, I have these evidences. If I'm godly, I have these evidences. These are all synonymous terms. If we take a wagon wheel and the center hub of a western wagon wheel is true conversion, then all the spokes coming off of it are these various terms. Love for Christ, godliness, sanctified, transformed, grace living. They are all coming off the hub of true conversion. If I'm converted, I love Christ. I live by grace. I'm sanctified. I'm holy. I'm a person of the word. I live according to godly tenets. And these evidences are very simple, very simple. So you can see in the note sheet, in green, the marks of godliness are listed here. And mark number one that we looked at is love's Bible instruction, instructing us continuously. When you're saved, verse 12, you are continuously trained by the word, privately and corporately. Mark number two that we saw in your note sheet, the godly believer loves fellowship in the body of Christ, especially to be instructed. Us is the implication, goes back to Titus or Acts chapter 2, excuse me, where the new converts hungered for fellowship to grow. The us, we have to gather corporately. This isn't church attendance. We gather for three things, not just to sit, worship, fellowship, serve. Those three things. That's why we gather in the body life. You can't do that outside of a local church. You can't do that through Zoom, muted and dark screened. You can't do those. Zoom in our church, folks, is for I'm sick, I've been wasted with a hard week of work, i got to take care of somebody, etc. Zoom is not, I'm lazy, it's raining, I don't want to go to church. It is not an indolence promoter, Zoom. It shouldn't be that way. We have to be us, in verse 12, to worship together as the body, to fellowship together as the body, and to serve together as the body. And, of course, part of fellowship is fellowshipping under the word of God as it's taught corporately. Mark number three is where we're currently in. Instructing, 
fellowshipping. And what are we here to do? To deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Mark number three. The godly believer denies ungodliness and worldly desires when he's instructed in the word. This is the primary reason you're here. You're to have your sin confronted. We do realize that if we're a mechanic, to use Skyway as an analogy, and I'm told that when I'm working as a mechanic on a wheel, that I have to use a wrench to remove the lug nuts, that that's a simple thing, right? You're here as a mechanic to get behind that wheel. You can't until you put the wrench on and righty-tighty, lefty-loosey, and you get the lug nuts off. You are here, fundamentally, to get the lug nuts off. The Word of God is the wrench. It is meant to open up all the garbage behind the wheel. And when you're never convicted from the Word of God, the wheel is still there. How can a mechanic fix the brakes if the wheel's not popped off? And if the Word of God doesn't convict you and make you feel incredibly guilty on a consistent basis, how could you ever deal with the filth in your heart? Look at it in verse 12. We're instructed to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. The Word of God is the lug nut wrench, and I'm the preacher of it. I can't get at your heart. The Word of God and the Spirit of God does as well. This is, again, so fundamentally simple. The blindness is profound to sit under the word and never be convicted or changed. You would think, some professed believer would say, there is something seriously wrong with me. Blindness is blindness. Blindness is blindness. So instructing us to, as your note sheet says, number one under Mark 3, points believers to denial. Secondly, if you're going to be instructed to deny ungodliness, then sermons and teaching, instruction has to be confrontational and negative, doesn't it? Right? Yeah? It says right there in verse 12, if I'm instructing you to deny ungodliness, then that means this is a confrontational experience. Fundamental to worship is confrontational, not feeling good. Denial does not mean you, like in our society, where we say, I deny something, it means I'm not admitting it. To deny here is actually to renounce, as your note sheet says, under point number two, our ne'amai, to renounce. It's one of the words, there are three or four major words for repentance, and this is one of them. Not metanoia, major word for repentance, this is denial, to strongly renounce something. So I stopped right there. Because this is such a profoundly huge topic. This is primarily why we sit under instruction, is to confront sin. That letter C at the bottom, I started to give you some essential facts of life, which is the sermon title as well at the top of the note sheet, concerning Bible instruction and its relationship to sin denial. On any given sermon, you may sit under it and be bored, mind-wandering, and walk out of here and get to the bank parking lot and not even remember what I was teaching. That's understandable. We're not perfect. But when you start rolling in weeks and months, I've been sitting out of John, wow, like, you know, months, years. I can't think of any real guilt that I've gotten from his sermons. Hmm. That's got to be John's fault. I can't make you feel guilty. That's incredible power you'd be granting me, right? How do I get into your conscience? 
right? Can't do that. So if you don't feel guilty under the preaching of the word of God, why is the spirit of God not making you feel guilty? Hmm? Something's amiss, right? Mm -hmm. So I've been giving you some applications of this instruction to deny. Two of them we've looked at. Number one, fact number one, facts of life. If a believer cannot win against sin, all Bible instructions should stop. The very fact that we're instructed to deny ungodliness means you can do it. Isn't that great news? Because you have the Spirit. If the Bible taught that nobody can ever change, you can never have victory over your sin, then why would we be instructed? This activity right here proves scripturally you can succeed. Fact number two. If a believer does not need to win against sin, first was cannot win, now it's not necessary, all instructions should stop. Ah, it's, it's, it's all optional. We don't really need to have our sin dealt with. Then instruction should be optional. Seems like the American church believes that. Bible-believing churches, as I've said, and you know, they keep gutting their teaching services. Shorten the sermons and dump the sermons out of the evening services or other points of time. By behavior, the American Bible-believing church, so-called, believes that instruction is not really necessary. And it does say instruct, doesn't it, in verse 12, or did I miss something? It doesn't say instruct, to teach, to instruct. It doesn't say sing, or did I miss it? Okay. Number three. Facts of life concerning sin denial. These are just applicational principles concerning that phrase, instruction towards, instruction to deny ungodliness, instruction towards repentance. Number three, a believer is in a power encounter when sitting under Bible instruction. A power encounter. Do you feel the power encounter every time you sit under the word of God? Do you know what that is? It's very simple. You sit down. I say, turn in your Bible, you turn in your Bible, and something up here starts to debate. Oh, here we go again, I've heard this, uh, I'm just going to tune out. Um, well, I sh this is the word of God, I should be listening. Uh, what am I going to have for lunch today? Um, oh, what's going on this week at work? Oh, wow, where's John now? What passages? You see that type of boredom, fading away, Mind wandering, and the more your mind wanders, the sound of John's voice becomes more droning, like Okay, what is that power encounter? It's in Galatians 5. There is a massive spiritual power encounter going on right now in this auditorium when the Word of God is preached. Galatians 5, verse 17, familiar passage. The flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. The flesh is your sin nature, not your physical body. That's a Gnostic heresy. If you think your body is sinful, you're wrong. Just because it's old, decrepit, and really ugly, okay, that doesn't mean it's sinful. Okay, so ugly is not sinful. I have to say that every day when I get up, get out of bed, and look like this in a mirror. And this is sticking way up here. My toupee is sticking way up here. Ugly is not sinful. Flesh refers to your sin nature. Okay? Believers here, verse 13 says, Brethren, 
Verse 17, the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. They're in opposition to one another. Sets its desire, one word. In the Greek, epithumia. So it says, the flesh lusts against the spirit. There it is. You want to know what the power encounter is? It's lust. The Holy Spirit wants you guilty over your sin, and your sin nature wants you to be lusting while the sermon is going on. Lusting for a host of things. Some fleshly desire, lusting for the sermon to be over. It's incredible. They are in opposition. That's a military term at the end of verse 17. Opposition to one another. This is continuous opposition. Antikemi, adversary, opposition. To be opposed as soldiers. You are in a soldiering battle. There's only one goal flesh wants from you right now in this sermon. Totally and consistently ignore the sermon. Shut down the conscience. Do not obey. That's the goal of your sin nature. That's the goal of demonic forces that can tempt us in a local church. The Spirit of God, as you've just seen in, back in Titus 2, go back there, in verse 12, the Spirit of God has only one goal predominantly, for you to be laid waste under the convicting power of a sermon. Overwhelmed with guilt so that you will seek the repentance and refreshment of forgiveness through Jesus Christ. This is the battle. So when you see prayer services end, teaching services end, uh, services during the week closed down, Christians not attending services less, which of these forces is winning? Preaching of the word? No. We know from 2 Timothy 4 that preaching will die in the Bible-believing church. Die, folks, in the Bible-believing church. The end of the last days. We had Judy McCormick over for coming over to our house with Bob for Thanksgiving for 40 years. And she, I said, how's Westchester Bible Church going? That was our home church back then. This is our home church now. And uh, 50 to 100 people. I said, did you guys find a pastor yet? Because the last pastor left like three years ago. She goes, no, um, listen to this. I don't think we even get any resumes anymore. When I went into the pastorate in 87, I contacted local churches, and this is what I would get over the phone. You can send your resume, but we've got a foot-high stack we're going through. Every single pastorless church was struggling to keep up with the flood of resumes. There aren't any anymore. There are no pastors out there. In fact, schools are being contacted by churches. Give us the names of your pastoral candidates. And if they graduate, we want them. We don't care if they have any experience or not. We're desperate. There are thousands of Bible-believing churches that have stopped even looking for candidates. You know what the primary number one evidence of apostasy overrunning Israel was in the Old Testament? The Lord removed the prophets from the land. Think he's doing that in the church age right now? Where are the candidates for the pastorate? One guy came into Westchester and he was a biblical counselor. He wasn't even a pastor teacher. He didn't know how to exegete the word of God. 
He just wanted to counsel on your feelings. That's the big hit thing now at schools. Pastoral departments are closing or shrinking. Psychology, Christian psychology departments are exploding. What is instruction in Titus 2.12? It's the teaching of the word of God. What does a pastor teacher do? He teaches the word of God. Render judgment. Desperate times require desperate words. Guys like me are getting old. I pull my chair up so I can sit down. I'm not going to be here very long. In the grand scheme of time. MacArthur's in his 80s. Swindoll's still preaching in his late 80s. Where is the line of men ready to replace us? Nay, it never happened. But what if I eat the piece of chicken this afternoon at the house and the bone sticks in my throat and I die? If you think a church with gorgeous facilities on Cermak Road, huge parking lot, gorgeous building, Great access in wealthy, affluent suburbia, Westchester Bible Church, can't get a single resume when old Pillsbury Doughboy John croaks. You think you're going to get somebody else in here? You think your average candidate that's left wants an impoverished salary, an impoverished number of people, and an impoverished community, high crime, that's going to be top of his hit list? The reason God is removing the prophets from the land in the New Testament is we're under judgment. Judgment in leadership, judgment in churches. So, the power encounter, which side is winning? Flesh or the spirit? Flesh. Well, so the spirit's not powerful. <laughs> spirit's not powerful? One snap of God's finger in the universe could go out of existence. Just like that. That's how it came into existence. Ex nihilo. Latin, ex nihilo. Out of nothing. Boom! The entire universe. God can't? Find pastors? God can't convict a human heart. It's a power encounter. And when there's no power in the pews, it's because the Spirit has cut off the tap. There's only one reason he does that, judgment. Yes. No, I don't want to hear any verses. Sure, go right ahead. I have so many Christians outside this church. Where can I go? I've told you before, Eric and Becky drive almost an hour to get a church that they believe is Bible-believing, as perspectives as they see. It's getting bad. It's getting real bad. 
Well, that's the Old Testament. No, the New Testament, it says in 2 Timothy 4 that the churches will accumulate for themselves teachers and accumulate, pile them up. So we get tons of heretical teaching. Tons of heretical teaching. So underneath fact number three, point number one, a believer's sin nature is in constant lust mode. A believer's sin nature is in constant lust mode. Now we're not talking about the current of no pastors in the church today. We're talking about you. A believer's sin nature is in constant lust mode. You walk in here with a constantly operating sin nature that lusts, sets its desire. Back in that passage, is epithumia, as I mentioned. It's a word for lust. It's kata. Kata, epithumia. Sets its lust against. It is down from a higher plane to a lower plane. The flesh is trying to get you in your mind to move to a lower plane of spirituality into the realm of lust, where you're lusting for that which is not truth and lusting for that which is not holy. That's what your mind is doing to you. And it does that by negating the truth through the ear gate so that you're not getting it. It's not Alzheimer's. What it is is a wall of blindness and hardness. And if the Spirit doesn't penetrate that, that's judgment. If you're not convicted, you're under judgment. This is not just the unusually righteous believer. This is the battle of every believer. Flesh wars against the spirit. Unless you choose to repent and walk by the spirit, you will lose the day to the flesh. You will be blinded. You will be ensnared by Satan. Your sin nature is pushing hard to get you to lower the standards while you're sitting here. I've heard this. This is boring. Why does he repeat? Blah, 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 blah. And the Spirit of God is saying, please, please listen. Please listen. Be convicted. This is you. What's wrong with you? Why aren't you repenting? Is this a major problem for you? Under number one, you can write this. No conviction consistently means you've lost the battle with lust. No hatred of sin. No conviction. Spirit at best has turned the flow of conviction off. The spirit at worst is not even there. Number two, a believer's sin nature stands in opposition to the Spirit. As I mentioned, opposition, anti-kemi, or anti-kemi. This is an adversarial relationship. We are doing, there's a miracle going on right here. There's an absolute spiritual, unseen war and miracle going on in this room right now. And it's in you, and it's in me. It's not demons and Satan. It is in you. Your sin nature is opposing the spirit. They are adversarial. This is a power encounter. That's why it says in verse 12 of Titus 2, instructing us continuously over and over again to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. These are in opposition. Instruction in verse 12 is just like in, back in Ephesians in Galatians, Galatians 5 and Ephesians 4. The exact same thing, instructing to deny ungodliness. Do you see the battle there in verse 12? 
That's what the instruction is. This is a major power encounter. Have you ever seen it that way? That your flesh is trying to negate your conscience here on a regular basis. Well, I feel guilt. Is that good? That's step one, guilt. Remember, guilt alone. Unbelievers out there have guilt, and that's why they commit suicide. Guilt is not the end of conviction. It is the beginning. You feel guilt over the fact that you're not feeling guilt. You're feeling guilt that the sermon has no impact on you. You feel guilt that the very thing that is taught is in your mind and you're failing in that area. It's the first step of conviction. Then you get overwhelmed. This, this, this is consistently in my life. I'm not seeing any transformation. I don't know if I'm saved. Second part of conviction is loss of assurance. Where there's no victory, there's loss of assurance. The Spirit of God is now hammering away at the wall. I feel guilty. I'm not sure if I'm saved. That is a miraculous power encounter of the Spirit in your mind. Saying you are very, very much messed up. Pounding with loss of assurance. As 1 John 4 says, assurance is only a gift to the godly. When I lose my assurance, it means I'm ungodly. So I feel guilt under sermons. And then I, I'm failing so miserably. I'm losing assurance. I have holy terror in my heart, Hebrews 10. And now, and now, oh God, God, forgive me. I repent and turn. Boom! The spirit wins right there. We don't have that in our churches today. This is the visual picture of the body of Christ right now in a second of Christians sitting under the word of God. Does this look like Holy Spirit conviction? This is the Spirit judging. This is sin winning. Remember Jonathan Edwards, the Great Awakening? He preached and there was revival and there was so much conviction and power of the Spirit that the feet of believers were stomping under the pews out of massive Holy Spirit terror ducking down under the pew to get away from the verbal assault on their conscience. Jonah did it this way. He got in a boat and ran like crazy from God. The modern day analogy of that is, I can't take this anymore. I've got to run and stop attending. Bible teachers that are left, old geezers, anonymous, we could call ourselves. We stand as frontline soldiers in this war against sin in churches. We're branded as the enemy, actually, by wicked believers who are blind to their sins, who truly believe that sin-confronting teaching is wrong and negative. So what do I do, John? What do I do? What do I do? You can't do anything. You've got to plead mercy upon the throne of God. That raises fact number four, and with this one we'll close. It's very simple. It's a proposition. 
based on Titus 2.12. A believer chooses to use or abuse Bible instruction. Use or abuse Bible instruction. You are a Bible teaching, and I am, abuser of the Word of God. If. Are you ready? It's in your notes. We abuse Bible instruction if you ignore it. That's how you do it. If you ignore it. And you know what the powerful, fleshly, demonic force is behind ignoring the Word? It's this philosophy. Write it down under fact number four. This is key. I am tired of constantly feeling guilt. That statement is the mark of an evil, backslidden, rebellious believer. You know what I'm tired of? I'm tired of not feeling guilt enough. I'm tired of the constant tentacles of apathy and coldness when I should feel for my sin great guilt. The wicked believer has had it. That's abuse. Ignoring the word of God. The Spirit of God looks at your mind and sees if you're an abuser. According to 1 Thessalonians 5, 19-21, you can read it. The Spirit of God in 1 Thessalonians 5, 19-21 says, when you're an abuser of the word of God, number one, in your heart you despise it, and number two, you ignore it. And he cuts off the power of the Spirit at that point. It's called quenching. Heaven help the believer who's been quenched. Heaven help us. This is prophecy fulfilled. This is miraculous that pastors can't be found, resumes have disappeared, churches are closing. It's been predicted. 1 Timothy 4 was predicted and 2 Timothy 4. It's astounding to me. Prediction is coming true. It can't be stopped. The death of the church is inevitable. The professed body of Christ, not the true church, is inevitable as the death of professed apostate Israel. The only question for you is which side of the army are you on? In these last days, are you on the using of the word of God or the abusing of the word of God? That's the only question. Apostasy is here to stay. The professed church is vanquished. The remnant of true believers will continue to persevere, as Philippians 1.6 says, as we saw. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. The only question in this auditorium for you this morning from this sermon is which side are you on? The side of the apostate and the rebel? The side of the true believer? The true believer uses the word of God, wants the deep streams and rhythms of conviction to repent continuously. And the abuser stands in line awaiting the Antichrist. The false believer who abuses the word of God at all costs, resists it, ignores it, opposes it, wanders through it, not convicted, hardened, blames the messenger, eventually blames the message, eventually leaves to find a church that will appease the conscience.
And old guys like me will keep throwing it out by the grace of God until we're dead. And God help churches like this. When pastor teachers, elders who teach are gone. Can't stop prophecy, Lord. And the massive implication and truth is that heresy will multiply like rats in a sewer. And true teaching will die. So be it. My concern is simply where am I in my own life? Am I a user of instruction or an abuser? In Jesus' name, amen.